Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, Trade and U.S. Economics Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we're going to talk about a way to save the World Trade Organization from the Trump administration's trade wars with China. There will be some overlap with a very long piece that Samaya wrote this week for The Economist. And of course, all listeners should check it out. But now, where are we? Well, we have tariffs of 25% on $34 billion worth of Chinese imports. We have the same back again from China. The Chinese have filed a formal complaint against the Americans at the World Trade Organization. But it looks like the Americans are not going to wait. They are going to hit back with even more tariffs. In general, there's been a bit of confusion about what it is that America wants from the Chinese. Do they want a smaller bilateral trade deficit or massive changes to Chinese economic strategy? I think there's also been a bit of confusion about what a deal to end this conflict might look like. Xi Jinping can't really stand up tomorrow and say, oh, I've changed my mind, we're not going to pursue our industrial policy anymore. Because the next question would be, how do you write that into an enforceable deal? For a long time, even I've been arguing that some of the Trump administration's concerns with the Chinese economic model, well, they're legitimate. Let me start off by recognizing that a major factor in the rising tensions that we're currently observing between the United States and China has been the resurgent role of the state in the Chinese economy. That was me on June 8th in a hearing before the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. And there, even I acknowledge that the existing WTO rulebook may be incomplete. But the solution I think people should be going for is more and better rules. Surprise, surprise, Chad thinks the answer to the world's problems is a better rule book at the World Trade Organization. It turns out Chad is not the only one who thinks that. There are people out there trying to think about what new rules at the World Trade Organization might look like. Starting last December, during the WTO's ministerial meeting in Buenos Aires, Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, alongside Cecilia Malmstrom, that's the EU trade commissioner, and Hiroshige Seiko, the Minister of Economy, Trade, and Industry for Japan, they all signed up to the following statement. We shared the view that severe excess capacity in key sectors, exacerbated by government-financed and supported capacity expansion, unfair competitive conditions caused by large market-distorting subsidies and state-owned enterprises, forced technology transfer, and local content requirements and preferences, are serious concerns for the proper functioning of international trade the creation of innovative technologies, and the sustainable growth of the global economy. We, to address this critical concern, agreed to enhance trilateral cooperation in the WTO and in other forums as appropriate to eliminate these and other unfair market-distorting and protectionist practices by third countries. I think we can all agree that that statement could have done with a little bit of editing, uh, and it was also a little bit vague. But since then, there have been more statements, there have been more meetings, and there's been more engagement between the EU, the US, and Japan. They've become much more specific about the kinds of things that they're discussing, the kinds of changes to the international rulebook that they would like to see. China wasn't named in that December statement, but the things that the US, Europe, and Japan are talking about are particularly prevalent in China. To give a quick summary of my piece in this week's issue of The Economist, a few years ago, there was no way that the Chinese would ever have signed up to anything like a new set of rules that was essentially designed at curbing some of its economic policies. 
their view is that they already paid into the system when they joined the World Trade Organization. Their accession protocol was pretty harsh. And besides, what would they get in return? It really wasn't clear what they would want in exchange for the cost that they would essentially face of signing up to any new rules. You could interpret the Trump administration's actions as essentially trying to change the status quo. So the grand bargain that could happen is one after the Chinese are presented with a choice between a stable system where it signs up to new rules and an unstable system in which the US has tariffs and there's just general economic friction between these big powers. We'll return at the end to how optimistic I am about that grand bargain actually happening. But for now, let's turn to what's being discussed in these trilateral talks between the US, EU, and Japan. Now, you don't need to be a sleuth journalist to figure out what it is that they're actually talking about. On May 31st, three published a joint statement saying what the scope of these discussions would actually be. Annex one of the statement, which don't worry, we'll tweet out, sets out the kinds of things that these three countries are thinking about when they're developing stronger rules on industrial subsidies in particular. The first is, listeners will be excited to learn, transparency, notifications. This may sound boring, but it's actually really important. It's, it's a bit boring. Tariffs are the obvious policies out there that distort trade. Subsidies aren't. Countries are supposed to tell the WTO about the subsidies that they're handing out. But under the current system, if you don't, nothing really bad ever happens to you. As of October of 2017, the WTO's annual report said that over the period of 1995 to 2015, roughly a third of all domestic subsidies and export subsidies just hadn't been reported to the World Trade Organization. The U.S. has argued, with some support from other WTO members, that the fact that members don't comply with their notification requirements means that the WTO just doesn't work as well as it should. In December, before the World Trade Organization's last meeting of ministers, they actually submitted a proposal to toughen up the incentives to submit your notifications. And in the spiel that came along with that proposal, they said, if members can't comply with the most basic obligations, what certainty can there be that they are complying with the more substantive ones? So these three big WTO members, the US, EU, and Japan, they want to come up with some kind of incentive scheme with indirect or direct incentives to tell the WTO about what countries are doing on subsidies. Now, I just said that the U.S. did make this proposal at the last ministerial meeting, and they met some resistance. So we shouldn't expect that this would be a completely straightforward process. Potential problems include the fact that poorer countries might be very, very worried about being punished for essentially just not having the capacity to notify the WTO about their subsidies. I think there is supposed to be technical assistance available to countries who need it, so perhaps there's some way of getting around that, but they'll be fairly worried. And then you've got members like South Africa who say they're unwilling to sign up to anything with punitive measures. They just don't want more teeth at the World Trade Organization. I'd argue that while better notifications would be good, this can actually be a bit of a red herring because there's a really much bigger question out there, which you have to ask first, which is what actually is a subsidy? And this relates to the second thing on the agenda of this trilateral group. They're trying to change the rules so that more things actually count as a subsidy. The issue is that sometimes it's really obvious what is a subsidy and other times it's really not. Take somewhere like the US or the EU, where there are relatively clear boundaries between the private and public sectors. In that setting, a subsidy is where the government explicitly pays a company or somehow gives them a benefit to do something, like make stuff or export stuff. 
But in China, there's loads of these state-owned enterprises, and it can be unclear where the government ends and actually where these private sector companies begin. So let's just go through an example. Supposing you have a state-owned enterprise like a Chinese bank, and they lend to a steel company at really, really low interest rates. And they can lend at those rates because the state-owned company, well, they don't need to make a profit in order to survive. Now, is that cheap credit a subsidy or is it a private sector transaction? In some disputes between China and the United States, the Americans claim that if a state-owned enterprise was majority owned by the government, it should count as what's called a public body, and then any artificially cheap inputs that that public body handed out should count as a subsidy. Essentially, when the Americans see a company in China that is majority owned by the government and they see it handing out cheap inputs to other companies, then they don't like it. They want to hit them with some kind of defensive duty. They're worried about a situation in which its companies are going through job losses and bankruptcies, and the Chinese ones aren't because they are being supported by the state. That was the issue in this dispute between America and China. America had applied anti-subsidy duties on imports coming from China, and China had disputed. And this came up: this question of, well, what is a subsidy? Is this being provided by the state? Had the World Trade Organization's appellate body agreed with America, it would have been much more easy for the Americans to look at the ownership structure of this Chinese company and say, "Yep." You're you're a state body, you're a public body, and I can hit you with an anti-subsidy tariff or a countervailing duty. But they did not agree. And the Americans reckon this left a massive loophole in the rules for the Chinese to go out and funnel a ton of subsidies through these state-owned enterprises. But now, perhaps as part of this trilateral talk, perhaps this is the moment for public bodies to be redefined. It's worth saying that it might not be all that easy to come up with a new definition of a public body. Because in China, there's a bunch of different ways that the Chinese government actually exerts control over the private sector. So you might have a company that seems private, but it has Chinese Communist Party officials sitting on their board of directors or management actually telling the company what to do. So there is a philosophical question about whether you could write down a complete definition of what counts as a public body. And obviously, the broader you go, the more likely the Chinese are to resist. As well as this definitional stuff, this question of what counts as a public body and so what counts as a subsidy in the trilateral talks, they're also talking about developing rules to limit subsidies at the source. It's worth mentioning why stronger limits don't already exist on subsidies in the WTO's rulebook. Essentially, American and European lawyers were too worried about their own subsidies getting caught up in any new rules that they signed up to. They they were worried about their own dirty laundry. And they also didn't expect the Chinese economy to get so big, and for the Chinese state to have the capacity to hand out vast quantities of subsidies. The scoping document mentions discussions to straight out ban some of these kinds of subsidies, or make countries prove that their subsidies aren't actually causing commercial harm to other countries. And it mentions some new rules that would provide a quote targeted remedy to address subsidies related to excess capacity. It's this idea of writing rules to curb subsidies that lead to excess capacity that's really interesting. It's excess capacity that people in the steel and aluminium industries complain about. They complain that the Chinese government has given subsidies to their industries, which has led to them producing too much metal, which then hurts American or European producers who don't get the benefit of those subsidies. For me, the big policy question is: Is there actually some objective definition about what excess capacity is? Something that you could actually write rules around? 
So first, you do need to come up with a definition that is empirically verifiable, meaning everybody knows when it would be binding, and so they can avoid actually breaking the rule and not getting caught up in a dispute. But second, and this is kind of where the problem comes in, at least in economics, there isn't an obvious off-the-shelf definition of what excess capacity actually is or when it's occurring. So to come up with one, you'd have to decide on what it is that you're actually worried about. So maybe you're worried about market power. So you're worried that maybe a small group of countries, they're going to be the ones that drive all the others out of business. And at the end of that, they would dominate the supply of something, maybe steel, maybe aluminum, maybe solar panels. And then they could become a monopolist, raising prices and restricting output and hurting all the rest of the world's consumers. But if not, what is it that you're actually worried about in this world of excess capacity? The point to me here is this isn't obvious yet. And if you end up writing down rules that either don't make economic sense or they aren't verifiable and enforceable, you ultimately won't have ended up solving the problem. The next problem, I think, is whether you can actually get to the source of the excess capacity. So suppose you have a huge Chinese steel or aluminium industry that isn't closing down its capacity when prices are very, very low. But also suppose they're not actually exporting anything. So you can't punish them for their behavior. How can you actually design some kind of trade remedy, trade defense that would get to that source of the problem? And right now, the only real way that you can do it is either through countervailing duties, the immediate way of hitting back with tariffs, or filing a WTO dispute that takes many, many years to get resolved before you get to the point where you can actually get authorized to retaliate over other goods, over not steel, not aluminum, but maybe something else that China is exporting to your market. And the argument would be many years down the line, the problem has already persisted for far too long. And so this process just doesn't work. So the EU, Japan, the US, they are discussing new rules on subsidies and hopefully by now, listeners will have been convinced that the problem is a bit more complicated than write new rules. And briefly, there is some other stuff that they're discussing. They're talking about the other major concern of the US, which is the idea that the Chinese are forcing American companies to hand over their technology when operating in China. That is actually probably an even more difficult thing to write rules about than subsidies, not only because you would need to draw on lots of different bits of international law and maybe some things can only be solved in a bilateral investment treaty, but it's also because of how in China rules work a bit differently to in other countries. And what you'd really like to be able to do is to compare the rules in China with some international rules. But international rules can be really hard to test against what China is doing. These Chinese rules that aren't written down, but they're being communicated between perhaps different levels of government, and sometimes from a Chinese company to an American company that they're cooperating with. I think part of the problem is that, again, it's often difficult to know where the private sector ends and the public sector starts. And so if the private sector company that the American company is operating with is telling the American company, no, no, you really have to hand over this technology. What is the American company to think? It's just, it's just all very blurry. I should probably add a dose of pessimism to all of this. So it's going to be really difficult to get any set of rules written up and then agreed, and then written into the WTO. It would require the US, Japan, and the EU to carry on cooperating, which could get much more difficult if we get American tariffs on cars, for example, which would be an order of magnitude bigger than what we saw on steel and aluminium. It would require the Americans and the Chinese to sign up. 
it will probably require the Americans to at some point back off from their tariffs in some way, and and they may require more from the Chinese than any set of new rules before they do that. They may require some kind of evidence that the Chinese are acting, and for all of the reasons discussed, that may just be really difficult to gather. Some of these items could be agreed with a critical mass or just a small set of countries under what's called in WTO speak a plurilateral trade agreement. But anything that's going to require the entire WTO membership to sign on is going to be really, really difficult. As a final dose of pessimism, for new rules to matter, there has to be a way of enforcing them. But the Trump administration is still blocking the WTO's way of doing this. It's blocking the appointment of judges to the WTO's Supreme Court, its appellate body. Now, to its credit, in the European Union's proposal on WTO modernization, a document that was leaked last week and reported on by Bryce Basik of Bloomberg News, the Europeans have made some proposals about how to resolve this potential impasse. But a lot needs to happen before I start feeling even remotely optimistic about this whole thing. On that happy note, that is all for Trade Talks. Thanks to my Peterson Institute colleague, Melina Kalb, for being the voice of the trilateral statement. And a special thanks to Colin Warren, who is now heading up our audio team. I think if listeners wanted to turn our frowns upside down, make us less pessimistic, then they could look at these proposals. They could think about them and they could think about something positive rather than essentially just worrying about Donald Trump all day. We do that enough for all of you. So let's let's think about something more constructive. If you have comments, queries, admiration, then I'm on Twitter at at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to saving the WTO, two plans may be better than one. Actually, we don't have a second plan yet, do we? We just only have this one plan. I didn't have any. (laughs) Like, these are already unfunny. They can't be inaccurate. (laughs) 